This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Ted Genoese discusses his new book, This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Farm. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese previews the Frankfurt Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD Bookscan. Well, it's a banner week. I think you've got uh, the best-selling title in the nation by <laughs> yeah. far yes. on your list at number I one. Do. I do. It is, uh, not surprisingly, uh, what happened Hillary Rodham Clinton coming in at um, just under 170,000 copies. So, wow. Yeah. Yep. In one week. In one week. Yeah. Love it or hate it. Yeah. People are buying it. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So uh, we gave it a mixed review, which seems to be in line with about half the reviews out there of the book. Um, but I'm just going to go down quickly. Uh, yeah, because there's the a other, lot happening. A lot. Uh, so in other political books, uh, Katie Turr's book, Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. Turr is the NBC News political journalist who is the target of so many of uh, Trump's uh, digs uh, throughout the campaign, referring to her mostly as Little Katie. And so this is a book about what it was like to cover Trump. I, I think before what she argues before everyone else started taking him seriously, she was mm. covering him. So, and that's a, that's at a respectful, uh, uh, respectable 20,000 copies. But just jumping back a little bit to number two, we have Brene Brown, Braving the Wilderness, uh, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. We don't have a review for that, but uh, the uh, publicity material says it's a timely and important book that challenges everything we think we know about cultivating true belonging in our communities, organizations, and culture. So going down a little bit further, uh, Max Lucado, Anxious for Nothing, Finding Calm in a Chaotic World at number four. Uh, Lucado, who's the author of You'll Get Through This, uh, he's the uh, preacher at Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas, once again brings Seekers, a compulsively readable book focused on an aspect of Christian living that many find challenging, and that is overcoming anxiety to find peace in life. And then at number five is one of several cookbooks or books on eating. F asterisk CK, that's delicious by Action Bronson. It's not really a cookbook. It's not a memoir. It's just really a, a kind of devotional to, um, uh, great food. Um, and then, so just going on food, I want to just lump them together a little bit. At number 12, uh, we've got, in, as, as I said before, we've been seeing a lot of cookbooks mm-hmm. on the general nonfiction list, more than I think we've seen in years before, but especially this season, uh, by Tegan uh, Gerard, Half-Baked Harvest Cookbook, Recipes from My Barn to the Mountains. This is from the Colorado Mountains, uh, and that's at number 12. And then we also have um, from Christopher Kimball, The Mil- uh, Milk Streak, The New 
new home cooking. I should say Milk Street. Uh, Kimball is, as many people know, former Cook's Illustrated editor. Uh, he launched uh, uh, Christopher Kimball's Milk Street in 2016. And uh, this is – it's a cooking venture that includes a school, magazine, and public TV and shows. And uh, this is the first book cookbook to come out of that. And just to talk about a few other books, we have Finish, uh, Stop Making Perfect, The Enemy of Done by John Acuff. Uh, and this is another – humorous, you know, self-help book. And one book that we reviewed really well uh, is uh, tennis star Maria Sharapova, Unstoppable, My Life So Far. We say uh, in this insightful memoir, 30-year-old tennis star Sharapova details her life from her earliest memories to the present day. Uh, Sharapova's eloquent self-awareness provides a rare glimpse into the disorienting push and pull of a famous athlete's life. Uh, she details what it was like, you know, winning Wimbledon at age 17, but also uh, discussing how to lose, uh, which she did uh, several times, but also her rivalry with uh, Serena Williams. So good to see that at number 13. And uh, we have a few more, but I think that I'm going to leave it at that for right now. All right. Well, there's certainly a lot going on. Uh, we also have a new number one, two, and three in hardcover fiction. Number one is A Column of Fire by Ken Follett. Uh, no surprise that that's up there at the top. He's a very well-regarded author. Uh, and we say in our review that treasonous plots, family rifts, and international political intrigue abound in this third installment of the Kingsbridge series of historical dramas. This one is set in the midst of 16th century England, uh, where Kingsbridge Cathedral stands above a town divided by religious conflict as uh, Bloody Mary Tudor is mm. killing Protestants and uh, an 18-year-old nobleman loses his sweetheart and his family's importing business uh, after the queen condemns them for being pro-Protestant. And so he decides to join Elizabeth Tudor's secret service. And we say that the novel is an immersive journey through the tumultuous world of 16th century Europe and some of the bloodiest religious wars in history. And that Follett's sprawling novel is a fine mix of heart-pounding drama and erudite historicism. At number two, we have The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye, uh, Elizabeth Salander novel by David Lagerkrantz. And uh, we gave this a starred review, so it's an excellent second contribution to Stieg Larsson's Millennium series. And it finds Elizabeth Salander serving a two-month sentence in a maximum security women's prison for unlawful use of property and reckless endangerment stemming from a murder, murder case chronicled in 2015's The Girl in the Spider's Web. And uh, in this case, she doesn't mind being incarcerated because it allows her to work on her attempt to combine quantum mechanics with the theory of relativity. But also there's some stuff involving gangs. Mm. So this uh, sounds like a, a pretty solid contribution to the series. And we say the various twisting plot lines tie together in this complicated, fascinating mystery. And as a bonus, readers finally learn the meaning of the dragon tattoo on Lisbeth's back, which started the whole oh, series. Wow. And number three, the Romanov Ransom, uh, Sam and Remy Fargo adventure. Uh, we say this is tepid, mm -hmm. um, but the focus of, uh, of this book, uh, which is written by Clive Cussler with Robin Bursell, um, is the Romanov Ransom treasures collected by the Dowager Empress Maria Fedorovna in 1918 in a doomed effort to buy the freedom of Tsar Nicholas II and his family from the Bolsheviks. Uh, the ransom was never paid, so the theory is that this man massive treasure trove is still out there 
just waiting to be found. And of course, um, that uh, is enough for Custler to work with. We will say that e- uh, we, our review says that even serious fans will hope that Custler cranks up the heat next time. And also that he tackles two real life mysteries that were mentioned only in passing in this installment. One being the Amber Room that was looted by the Germans during World War II from a Russian palace and never recovered. And the other being the legendary Nazi gold train, which is supposedly still awaiting discovery in a Polish mine. Mm. Uh, moving down the list, number seven is Enigma by Catherine Coulter. We gave this a starred review. Said the bestseller Coulter is at the top of her game in her 21st FBI thriller featuring married agents Dylan Savage and Lacey Sherlock. Uh, there are two major plots. The first one gets off to a fast start when a young man invades the house of a pregnant woman uh, and uh, is is attacking her when Savage arrives and shoots the home invader who winds up in a coma uh, but there's no way to identify him. And uh, soon after, the woman gives birth and the baby is abducted from the same hospital, at which point Sherlock and her fellow agents get on the case. Twists and turns galore in both investigations ensure there is never a dull moment. And we say that newcomers will find this a good entry point. It works just as well as a standalone as part of the series. And number 10, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Eng. Uh, This novel from Eng is, uh, we say, both an intricate and captivating portrait of an eerily perfect suburban town with its dark undertones not quite hidden from view, and a powerful and suspenseful novel about motherhood. When the eccentric and itinerant artist Mia Warren and her 15-year-old daughter move into a rental house in Ohio, um, they and their conventional affluent landlords have no reason to anticipate how dangerously enmeshed the two families mm. will become. We gave this a starred review. Uh, we said that it explores the complexities of adoption, surrogacy, abortion, privacy, and class, questioning all the while who earns, who claims, and who loses the right to be called a mother. Mm. And we say this is an impressive accomplishment. Finally, uh, down at number 16, Robert B. Parker's The Hangman's Sonnet, a Jesse Stone novel by Reed Farrell Coleman. This is the fourth contribution from Coleman to Parker's Jesse Stone series. We gave it a star. We said that it explores the meaning of a haunting line uh, from a sonnet that says, The mirror has revealed my hangman's face. Uh, we say that Coleman balances plot and character perfectly as Jesse, who's uh, the police chief of a small town in Massachusetts, um, is uh, grappling with the recent death of his significant other who was murdered in front of him at the end of the last installment, Debt to Pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's definitely one for the series fans to really get the resonance of everything that's happening, uh, but a very, very strong contribution to the series. And that's what we've got. And that's the list we've been looking for for a while now. Yeah, that's right. The Just, summer doldrums yeah. definitely over. <laughs> exactly. Lots of big, big books coming out for fall. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ted Genoese tells us some surprising things about the lives of American farmers. We'll be right back. I'm Vanessa Panfield, the author of The Gangs All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Ted Genoese on the line. His new book is This Blessed Earth. A Year in the Life of an American Farm. Hello, Ted. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So for a year, you followed Rick Hammond, who's a soybean, corn, and cattle farmer living in Nebraska. Um, what what made you decide to, to, to begin this project? 
Well, I guess it really started from the research that I was doing and the work that I was doing on, on the previous book project, which was an examination of the meatpacking industry. And really, that work in itself grew out of, of broader uh, investigations that are being done under, I guess, sort of the heading of, of the food revolution or the food movement. Um, and people who are, I guess, beginning to interrogate where their food comes from and how it's grown and and asking questions about how things might be done better. But the thing that I continually found missing from the conversation was the voices of farmers themselves. And I just wanted to know something about how 10 years into the food movement, um, farmers were reacting. Were they seeing things that, that from this movement were improving their lives? Were they seeing no change or, or were they feeling um, negative pressures? And the thing that, that I discovered very quickly is that farmers um, who I think should really be natural allies for people in the food movement um, instead felt really alienated and felt really critiqued by people who very often live far away from farming areas but have very distinct ideas about how farmers should be doing things. So just to step back for a moment, what is the food movement? So the food movement, I guess I would think of this as um, uh, things that have grown out of, uh, particularly in my mind, out of Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation and out of Michael Pollan's uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, those two books kind of looking at the at the meat industry and then looking, um, you know, with Paul and stuff at, at the, the way that corn is grown um, on American farms. Certainly, Omnivore's Dilemma covered other terrain, but that was really what seemed to make an impact. And those books together started this this conversation about the way that agriculture had moved over the last generation. And I think we're, we're really instrumental in getting people to think about this question of whether there were better ways to be doing things. And I think that that's a vital conversation. I think those books were, were really great. Um, but unfortunately, the conversations that emerged over time seem to exclude uh, the very people who are have most at stake uh, with, with this uh, system that is currently in place and very often have felt the brunt of the changes that, that have been wrought by, by industry in the last generation. And they, of all people, would, would want to be, uh, I think, in league with, with a lot of what the food movement is pushing for, but too often they feel that they are the ones um, who are being criticized by the, by the movement rather than being enlisted in the cause. So is is this in ways a kind of urban, uh, uh, rural um, thing? Uh, the folks in the movement uh, living in cities or suburbs, thinking that that farmers are or that all farmers are are doing things like putting lots of hormones into their <laughs> into their um, the, the chickens or cattle or whatever, and not really knowing what farmers do. I think that's certainly a, a big part of it. I mean, it's. It's definitely true that that really since the beginning of the country we we have been on a trajectory that makes us less and less agrarian with every generation, and what that means is that 
with every generation, there are fewer Americans who have lived on farms who really know what farm life is about. And so um, even when there's often well-intentioned uh, conversations happening about how to repair the food system, um, those conversations can be led by people who, who haven't really experienced the full range of of both the joys and the pressures of um, of raising livestock and raising crops, and and haven't been subject to the market pressures um, that that really shape a lot of the way that farms operate. And so my my wish would be for a conversation that that starts by saying we all agree that there's something that needs to be done. Um, that the, the current trajectory that we're on isn't sustainable. But what what do you, as the people who are on the land and are there every day, uh, see that needs to be improved and can be improved? And how do we start that conversation of, of bringing those allies together in order to have a unified voice when speaking both to the government and to corporate ent entities that are sort of the big force in agribusiness? So let, let's pull back just a little bit, and and let's. You spent time, quite a bit of time, with Rick Hammond. Um, tell us about him and and about yeah. his farm and what he's doing. So Rick is um, a, a fascinating guy. He's he is a, a, a farmer who raises, um, as you say, corn and soybeans and and cattle on a fifth generation. Uh, farm in in york and has some acquired land in hamilton county uh it's mostly his his wife's land that that he's uh farming and uh he and his wife heidi have four kids um of the four one has come back to the farm megan who is there and working on the farm full-time and megan in the sort of on her path back to the farm, um, came back and, and brought with her, uh, her boyfriend at the time, who's now her husband, Kyle Galloway. And, and so the story is, is really about all of the changes that Rick has seen in his years on, of, of farming and Rick's in his sixties now. So has some perspective on that, that period of dramatic change. But it's also looking forward at this moment of, of what farmers call succession as the land is passed from one generation to the next. And all of the, the difficulties that come you know, financially and legally, but also it's a moment when, when farms as operations kind of naturally reflect on the course that the family has been on and trying to figure out what the best way forward is for continuing the, the operation for the next generation. How did you find the Hammonds? Well, the, the short answer is that my wife found the Hammonds. Um, my, my wife, Marianne Andre, is a photographer. Um, she and I work together often and uh, we had been working on a series of stories about the Keystone XL pipeline, which is the proposed project to bring um, mined tar sands uh, through a pipeline uh, down to refineries on, on the Gulf Coast in Texas. And the, the pipeline path would go directly through the Hammonds land. 
and the Hammonds were were some of the, the people along the route who were vehemently opposing the project and were really um, fighting back not only against the, the the project on environmental grounds, which they certainly were concerned with, but also on the, the just sort of the practice of uh, how all of this was being prosecuted and, and the ways in which um, there was a a great deal of corporate pressure that was being exerted on legislators and um, at that time on the Obama administration to try to get the project approved. And I was fascinated by this juxtaposition of a family that is living, um, you know, really an hour and a half outside of, of any city of any size and on a piece of land that they that their family has been on for close to 150 years and as remote and isolated as that might seem here were all of the forces of international trade and diplomacy coming directly to their door and the more that Marianne and I talked to the Hammonds the more that we realized that it was not just Keystone XL um, Megan's high school boyfriend was was killed by a roadside bomb in Iraq. Um, their their own uh, you know operation had been touched by uh, the, the pressures from from large uh, companies as they as they bought out smaller ones and combined them, so such that large multinationals like like Cargill and Dupont are a part of their daily lives. And so, what I guess fascinated me over time was was seeing how this small family unit um, in this relatively isolated place is still at the absolute epicenter of everything from from trade deals and um, international policy um, to the, the the corporate world that that has grown over the last generation. And I just I thought it was an opportunity to look at lots of, of big issues, but how they affect people directly um, on the ground. So through him, so tell us about your, your, your relationship with him and, and uh, what you learned about farming and, and his uh, and, and the families, uh, what they're up against on a daily, uh, on a daily basis. Sure. So Rick is is an interesting character um, all unto himself. He's a, you know, he grew up on on cattle ranches in in western Nebraska, but he always had um, this kind of freewheeling spirit. He he um, spent some time as a ski bum in Colorado. He spent some time in the Peace Corps, um, and so Rick is an extremely skilled. Um, cattleman and, and farmer, but he's also someone who has this kind of uh, a broader view, and and consequently he's he's this remarkable guide through the world of modern agriculture because he's able to bring a kind of uh, bird's eye view perspective even while he's able to explain everything from from a, a real lifetime of knowledge as well. And so the the thing that uh, that I hope is is the is the trajectory in all of this is is 
you know, following this family, not just for the year, but really coming to see um, th this whole family in, in a 360 perspective, but also their long history on this particular piece of ground and to see that that there is something more here than just um, you know a kind of confluence of contemporary issues that there's there's a there's a deep history and that's something that that I, I hope to bring to the fore because it, it's something that is as much in their minds every day as are the commodity prices or um, whatever the 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 particular pressures of the moment might be. Does Megan's boyfriend, or you said husband now, correct? Yes. Yes. yes um, does he also come from a farming background, or was this all new to him? It was all new to him, but um, but Kyle is—he's uh, incredibly good with his hands, first of all, and um, you know is a really skilled mechanic, which is a skill that is always in high demand on the farm. Um, but Kyle's also very good with numbers and just has um, a kind of remarkable instinct for um, both the, the, the technology that's now required for running a farm from data collection and entering into you know various databases and, and pulling out the, the information that you need, um, but, but also just has kind of uh, a good business sense. And so uh, some of what happened across the year that, that I spent with them was getting to see some of that apprenticeship emerge as uh, Kyle and Megan began you know, making some decisions about how they wanted to market the cattle that are theirs, uh, what crops they wanted to plant in anticipation of the, of the next year's harvest. And... Um, to just have a little bit of uh, firsthand knowledge of those things. And Rick was, you know, always saying, you know, you think you understand how to do all of these things, but you don't really understand until it's your call, until, you know, the decision that you make is the one that you're on the hook for. And, you know, he's set things up so that they're managing their portion of the farm. So, you know, any misstep doesn't, uh, jeopardize the overall operation, but it is um, a bit of a, of a trial by fire. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Ted Genoese, author of This Blessed Earth. So in addition to following the Hammond family, you go into the history of Nebraska farming, talk about, you go all the way back to the Civil War and when President Lincoln signed the Homestead Act. Tell us about that and how that set up the situation that you ended up living through for a year with the Hammond family. You know, well, so I think we all know about the, the, the creation of the Homestead Act as, as a way of of establishing some westward expansion. One of the things that I thought was interesting that, that came up in the research was the, the idea that 
first of all, this was something that, that Lincoln didn't even attempt to get through until the country was was at war. Um, and without the, the, the presence of the southern states, um, Lincoln was able to say not only that we want to make this westward expansion free of slavery, but we want to set up uh, a system that will allow uh, farmers to move onto the land and and farm it themselves. So it won't be a large plantation system. It'll be a small a small farm system. Um, but we need to, if we're going to do that, also have some accompanying acts that that establish the railroads, that establish um, colleges and universities where agriculture is studied and taught to people who are farming. We need to establish the Department of Agriculture, and we need to have um, you know weather study that that is done in order to communicate uh, that information to farmers. And so it was it was really the all at once this moment of of modern agriculture of moving away from uh, a kind of plantation system that had existed in the south to a system of small plot farming where every person uh, was offered uh, 160 acres it was theirs free and clear as long as they would come to the land live on it build a home on it and farm it for five years. Um, and it was a system that came to be known as proving it up. And so if you could, if you could prove up your land, um, that 160 acres was yours. And that geography, um, 160 acres is a, is a one quarter of a mile square. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's, that's the way that, that a great deal of the West is still laid out. The, 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 the farms are, are a quarter mile square. The, the roads run along the mile markers. Uh, the towns were laid out six miles apart. Uh, and, and so everything about that original plan is still what defines the geography of the place. How does that jive with what you were saying about big companies like DuPont now coming in and buying up all of these small farms? Is that almost a, a return to the plantation system via uh, big business? Well, certainly that's the that's the concern out of um, farmers themselves and and out of um, sort of food observers uh, or or food system critics is is this idea that um, that essentially what what corporations have attempted to do is to gain um, control of all parts of the production chain. And really, the ideal from a corporate standpoint is to be able to own farmland, to be able to own seed technology, to own feed mills, and to own equipment companies. Um, But then also, uh, you know, much of this feed is being grown uh, for livestock to also be able to own feedlots, to own meat pot processing plants, so that every step of the way is is under their control. But of course, what this ultimately does is that every step, it removes a little bit of the free market conditions. You you get farmers to sign up with long-term contracts. You are are large enough and and um, have enough sort of business leverage or have enough market leverage to be able to dictate prices. And so the margins become extremely narrow for the farmers at the, at the bottom of that chain. 
and also uh, your choices become extremely limited. Um, and and I think you know I've I've heard more than a few farmers say, you know, I feel now like I'm I'm a sharecropper on my own land, and I think that's that's some of the um, sort of the root problem here is trying to figure out how we can give farmers more freedom in in making decisions about how they want to run their farms at, while at the same time maintaining this high level of, of production that we've had as there's a booming global population. And as you write this, this growth um, that we're seeing now, well, you, you know, we're talking about DuPont, other large companies, the, the, the growth kind of sped up after or during World War II. And then uh, in the 1970s, you write about the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Earl Butts, who was quoted as saying, uh, get big or get out. Um, what was the significance of that? Right. Well, so Butts, I mean, is really a, a product of, of that, that Cold War mentality coming out of World War II, where we had stepped up production of all farm uh, operations, but had also poured tons of resources into manufacturing. So it was not only that there was more land that had been tilled and put into to farm production, but there was also now the infrastructure for manufacturing more tractors, more trucks, um, everything that, that was necessary to kind of industrialize agriculture. And one of the thoughts that emerged then in the 1950s and forward was that we could use our superior agricultural technology and capability to try to control the world food markets, and especially the, the key grain markets. And if we could do that, the thought was that we would, in effect, be able to uh, overproduce in a way that would depress uh, grain prices worldwide and would make it so that countries like China and the Soviet Union were dependent on us for their grains, that they wouldn't be able to produce them uh, themselves as cheaply as they could buy them from us. And the thought was, as Butts famously said, that, that we could use food as a weapon. And that, that whole notion of using food production as a tool of foreign policy, I think on the one hand could be seen as something that has helped fight global uh, hunger and as something that has to some degree stabilized the the international uh, dynamic uh, politically over over the years since World War II but it is also something that has turned uh, the agricultural system in the US into something of a, a sort of service sector for the First of all, for the for the world market, but also has made decisions about how we proceed with agriculture. Um, th those decisions tend to be driven by foreign policy needs, as opposed to the needs of of food production and and how best to feed people and how best to treat the farmers who raise the food. So bringing it to the present day, you talk about the Hammonds fighting against the Keystone XL pipeline. What other activism are they and farmers like them engaging in? So the Keystone XL stuff really became um, 
a watershed moment in in my opinion. The farmers, uh, at especially at the beginning of things, the farmers and ranchers in Nebraska, their key objection to the pipeline was was not anything having to do with climate change, but rather the fact that the contents of the pipeline, um, they the farmers knew that the that what was flowing through the pipe would be toxic. But they didn't know the exact contents because TransCanada argued that it was proprietary information. So what that meant was that, that the farmers were being asked to dig a trench on their land, let a pipe be laid um, underground that, that would be passing over top or in some cases directly through the, the aquifer system that that all of their irrigation water comes from and often the, the water um, for the well for their livestock and for their families um, and that it would be pumping chemicals through that water that were completely unknown to the farmers and the farmers of course said this is this is too much risk for us to assume and and what we get out of it is is a one-time payment for for an easement in perpetuity and the but as the farmers started to seek allies in fighting back against the pipeline they quickly found people who were interested or concerned about broader issues of water quality and water safety of people who were concerned about climate change and broader environmental issues and the farmers themselves and the ranchers involved um, started to discover that they they had common concerns with some groups that I think that they had ordinarily written off as you know sort of environmental radicals and this became for the farmers the, a, a moment where they started looking at what their own impact had been um, using nitrogen compounds that had led to nitrate contamination in, in some of the the waterways that they were in the midst of trying to to conserve, but also broader questions about how the the farm practices that they're engaged in are contributing to climate change, which of course affects the, the farmers more directly and more immediately than almost anyone else in the United States. Hmm. And what this, to my mind, became was a kind of awakening for some of those farmers and ranchers that 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 they could do things in new ways um, that that would be just as cost effective for them but would make things more sustainable and of course if you're the sixth generation on a piece of land like Megan Hammond is and you, Megan and Kyle have just had their first child the seventh generation on the land to me it only makes sense that that you're looking at well what sorts of things can we do we can install a you know solar panels or we can install wind turbines and we can there are things that we can do to reduce our footprint here while continuing to produce food at the at the same uh level of efficiency so where are they going from here what happens now for the next generation and the generation after well, the pressures are are everywhere for for the farmers to just keep getting bigger. That the idea is, with everything 
you know, larger operations, more mechanization. Um, you know, there are there are manufacturers of farm equipment who are excitedly talking about the fact that that all of the the planters and harvesters that have been GPS uh, controlled and and uh, use the GPS uh, to set the planting patterns and the harvest patterns that they think that they're just a few years away from being able to have those systems be fully automated without a farmer to operate them um, and talk about a time when when it's possible for the for the farmer to run an operation without actually being on the land I think then the the real challenge for farmers is going to be on the one hand how you deal with the economic impact of this kind of technology and and what that does to prices overall um, if it's become something where where land can be farmed without a farmer um, what kind of of you know what does that do to prices? It will probably drive them down and make things even more economically difficult for the farmers. But I think that maybe the bigger issue is going to be psychological. Um, what what does it mean to be a farmer if you're not actually connected to the place where your ancestors have been? If you're not um, raising your kids on the place that you hope to pass on to them. And so I think, you know, to me, the, the open question is what the future is for, um, for agriculture on the one hand, but then maybe more significantly what the future is for rural life for people who have been really committed and connected to that for generations. We've been talking with Ted Genoese. You can find his book, This Blessed Earth, in stores right now. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the Frankfurt Book Fair, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm David Handler, the author of The Girl with the Kaleidoscope Eyes, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about what's going to happen at the Frankfurt Book Fair. Hi, Andrew. Hey there, Rose. Hey, Mark. Hello. So we're a couple weeks out, but we're going to ask you to predict the future. Uh, what's going to happen in Frankfurt? <laughs> uh, lots of rights deals this year. And oh, I that's easy. I think we're going to see another year of rising attendance. So I'm, if there's a theme for me that's emerging this year is that um, Frankfurt, like the publishing industry in general, is sort of showing its resilience a little bit. Uh, last year, they drew about 142,000 professional visitors to the fair, and that was the second year in a row where they had an uptick in attendance. And now that's still down considerably from 2009-ish levels where they had about 152,000, about 10,000 more wow. professional attendees. But that was when the global recession really started kicking in. And you had a bunch of years in a row where just the, nobody was making it to the fair that because of whether it was currency exchanges or economic reasons. It was also right. the uncertainty of the digital revolution was having some effect, I think, on the industry as well. But that appears to be in the rear view. Two straight years of attendance going up at Frankfurt, and uh, I think they've turned a corner. That's great. Excellent. So, what are the uh, hot topics you think might be uh, pressed on this time? I think that this year is going to be 
two years in a row, another year of politics really sort of leaping to the fore. And it really did start last year. I mean, politics always comes into book fairs in some capacity. But last year, really, uh, when after the coup in Turkey, the failed coup in Turkey, I should mention, Erdogan really uh, started shutting down publishers and jailing journalists and academics. Right. And uh, that really became sort of a hot topic at the Frankfurt Book Fair. And of course, you had uh, Brexit. Right. You had last year was the, the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you have Trump's actual election, which is kind of a big deal. If these, this wave of sort of nationalism that's rolling in around the globe. And a lot of these political movements are espousing values that are absolutely counter to those values in the publishing industry. Right. And to their credit at Frankfurt, and I interviewed Jurgen Booz at the end of last year's fair, and he told me that the fair was not going to shy away from political issues, that they were going to face these things head on. And I, I thought that was a, a important and fairly courageous stance and indeed true to form in statements ahead of the fair that Jurgen made uh, just this week. He acknowledged that the, the politics was going to be on tap this year and that publishers have to stand up for this stuff. He said, and I, I quote from last year, he said, we have to engage because our industry is based on freedom. So I would expect that you would see what's going on in Turkey, what's going on with Trump and with Brexit to be a, a big deal at this year's fair. And also I should mention that France is the guest of honor this year. And that's a big deal, not only because France has a great you know, literary tradition, uh, but because France and Germany have this sort of alliance now in Europe with the UK sort of backing out of the European Union, there's a, a real sense that uh, the, the European future is going to be a French-German alliance. Um, they're both very pro-Europe, and even though there's an election in Germany, there were, that could change. Right. Uh, but you, you'll see a very pro-Europe stance, I think, articulated this year politically at the fair. So how do you think that will manifest itself? In, in panels or by people speaking out on Twitter or what? How, how will it happen at the fair? I think you'll see all of the above. Yeah. Um, I think you'll see uh, uh, there's quite a few panels already that I think are have political overtones to them. For example, uh, at the pre-fair conference, which is called The Markets, yeah. the keynote opening keynote is going to be from U.S. literary agent Andrew Wiley, uh, who our listeners may know is quite a colorful character. Mm-hmm. And he is supposedly going to address publishing in the age of Trump. So you have a colorful literary character and a to be kind, colorful U.S. president that he's going to be commenting on. Um, and you also have, I, I think this year is going to be, I hesitate to say the year of the woman, um, but there's a lot of programming around women in publishing this year. There's yeah. a, a panel at the markets on women in executive positions in publishing, which I think is really important because the workforce in publishing is, by some estimates, as much as 75% female, yet right. the publisher's executive suites are overwhelmingly men. So I hope that this panel will shed a little light on that. And the CEO panel is going to be Carolyn Reedy, who's the mm-hmm. only female uh, CEO of the big five publishers. And right. I, I will be one of the people who will be interviewing her from the stage. So I'm very much looking forward to, to talking. With Carolyn. That sounds very exciting. Anything else in the programming that you're particularly looking forward to? You know, something always comes up at Frankfurt that's unexpected. So mm. I'm trying to leave a little room in the program this year to be surprised by something. But I, I think I'm really going to be interested this year in where digital is sort of fitting into publishing now. Going into Frankfurt this year, the big five publishers in the U.S. are just starting to angle into their new contracts with Amazon. Mm. Of course, they can't talk about any of that under, you know, death penalty or whatever it is Amazon puts on them with their NDAs. Um, but it's going to be very interesting to see how the the print 
digital balance is going to shake out uh, in the coming years. I remember in 2009, the big topic at Frankfurt was digital and piracy and all of these things. You almost never see piracy on the programs anymore. Right. Mm, you know, yeah, that's true. I remember, I remember you talking about that and writing about it. Everybody was afraid that you know, we're going to be just all of our stuff's going to be on the internet and it's going to be stolen. And now we've sure. gone to the other extreme. Now we have you know, books as apps where everything is very tightly controlled and people can't do with their eBooks what they used to be able to do with their print books, such right. as resell them or lend them, or, you know, have libraries lend them. Right. Um, there's all kinds of restrictions. The, the business of digital has changed quite a bit, but there still is this nagging sense of where does it fit in the industry? Now, publishers, for their part, they seem delighted not to be talking about the fear of digital anymore. And right. they also seem delighted that print sales are ticking back up and indie bookstore sales are ticking back up. Um, it's a sense that there's a sense of stability that comes with that because most of the industry is still built on that. Um, but in Frankfurt, you really get a sense of whether this is, you know, the calm before another storm comes up. If this is the really where we're settling into that we're going to this plateau of digital and print, whether this is really where things are going to be or whether another wave of innovation is going to come and throw the cards in the air again. So I'll be most interested in, in seeing where the digital print balance is shaking out, not just for U.S. publishers, but around the world. All right. Well, it sounds uh, like a lot to look forward to. And there, are there any uh, particular highlights of people that you're hoping to run into or interview or have a chat with? Well, the, the highlight for me is always the CEO panel where we I'm one of five people from publishing magazines around the world. We have our partners from the bookseller in the UK and uh, Dos Doce in Spain and uh, Leave Hebdo in France, where we all we get together two times on two separate days and interview CEOs and have oh, meetings. Wow. So I'm very interested in like sitting down and getting those takes, sort of like uh, we always have a very in-depth conversation about international territories and how everything's are going. So that's most of the things that I'm looking forward to will be uh, around those guys and, and that group of people. Well, I can't wait to hear all about it when that's you right. come back. We'll definitely <laughs> and have read it. about it in, in the pages of Publishers Weekly, of course. We'll, we will definitely, definitely have you back to tell us how it went. And uh, thank you so much for this preview. Of course anytime. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another great author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 